0: Well, good morning again. We are working through the book of Genesis. We've been working through the, Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis for some time now, and we are in Genesis 3, uh, Genesis, uh, this morning, Genesis 3, 6 through 24. We started looking at those verses last week, but we'll pick up uh, and look at them again this week from a, uh, looking at a few more verses in a slightly different angle. Uh, before we read that together, uh, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you again for your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, your truth. We thank you for uh, your gospel. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you are with us even now, and we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds by the work of your spirit to give us insight into your word, that we would be people who who draw near to you, who draw closer to you, who rest more fully in you, who remember the gospel, who look to Jesus, who delight in Christ above all things. Father, we pray that you would do that work in us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our, our sermon text, if you'll turn with me, is Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 24. Genesis 3, 6 through 24. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field." By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. we are not in eden i don't know if you've noticed Uh, okay you you probably have but this world is not paradise in fact it is hard and painful and it ends in death i'm not a pessimist i'd like to call myself a realist Uh, And yet, I'm not a realist like a Stoic. I haven't resigned to the brokenness of this age because I have hope. I fight for it. Uh, It doesn't come naturally to me, trust me. But I hope in the resurrection that God is at work now bringing new when all things are made new. This morning, we're going to talk about life outside of Eden. It is hard and painful, but it is not devoid of hope. And how could it be? I mean, we have a savior who got out of the grave. Death itself could not defeat him. By his resurrection, he inaugurated a new creation and opened the door again to paradise. And so we're going to start with hard things, uh, but we will end with hope. And so hold on, hang in there and, and persevere to the end. We're going to look at our text under four headings, uh, accountability, exile, pain, and hope. And we're we're actually going to look at this text, uh, Genesis 3, 6 through 24, or or really a little bit later than 6, but uh, we're going to look at it in reverse order. We're going to look at it in reverse order, and we'll end with Genesis 3, 15, and hope. So first, accountability. After uh, the recent blackouts in Texas, uh, the CEO of the board of the Electric Reliability Council of Texas was fired. Now, I can't speak to that particular situation, but when things go wrong in companies, uh, it is the people who are on top who are held accountable. And that actually makes sense. I mentioned we're going to look at this text in reverse order that uh, We're going to begin near the end and work our way back to the beginning. But really, accountability is all throughout this text, not just at the end. It's everywhere in the passage. And you may think, yeah, yeah, that, that's obvious. God is holding them accountable. Uh, they disobeyed, and God is carrying out his punishment. Uh, God told them in the day they eat of the tree, they will die. Now they are beginning to taste death, and that's true but that's actually not quite what I mean. Uh, It it is not primarily, as you look at Genesis 3, it's not primarily they who are accountable in this text. It is Adam. Uh, That is clear from the New Testament, uh, to be sure. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Uh, Romans 5.15, many died through one man's trespasses uh, or trespass. Uh, Romans 5.17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. And Paul goes on and on in that Romans 5 passage and talks about Adam's sin, the one man's sin. What has been interesting to me, though, as I've studied the passage this week, is that that is equally obvious in Genesis 3. Most of us just never noticed it before, myself included. Uh, There is one place where it's a little obscured in the translation, but for the most part, it is obvious in our English Bibles that Adam is the one being held accountable here. We just never noticed it before. But before we get ahead of ourselves, uh, we need to know the story. We need to know where we are. Uh, God placed Adam in the garden. He created the world, a good world. He placed Adam in the garden. He gave him charge over it uh, to work and to keep it. No suitable helper was found among the animals, so God created the woman to be like opposite Adam, right? Equal yet distinct. And at the end of Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are in paradise, naked and unashamed. In the beginning of Genesis 3, the serpent comes into the picture. And we know right away that something is wrong, as would the original readers, because serpents don't talk. The Bible is not a book of fables, They don't talk. Serpents don't talk. And this animal begins to talk and he begins to question God, immediately disclosing his nefarious purposes. Eve listens and engages with the serpent. She is tempted and takes the bait. Adam, who is there the whole time, uh, says nothing and simply goes along with his wife. Immediately after eating of the tree, the eyes of both are open, but rather than coming to some godlike knowledge, uh, which is what they expected and what the serpent promised they come to a knowledge of their sin and the immediate result is shame things get interesting when God shows up Uh, in in verse 8 we read this and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden Now, this is the one place, uh, actually, that the translation obscures a bit what is going on. Uh, I'm I'm not a great uh, Greek or Hebrew scholar, but this is what the scholars tell me. The phrase hid themselves is actually masculine singular. Uh, More woodenly, verse 8 would say, Adam hid himself and his wife. Uh, this way of speaking actually is not unique in scripture. You find it in other places. For example, in 1 Samuel 59, uh, where we read, but Saul and the people spared Agag. But it actually says, Saul spared Agag and the people. And, and so the point is, in both of those places, or the point is in the First Samuel place, that Saul is the leader who is performing the action and who will be held responsible for the action, even though the people are acting along with him. And so here, Adam is hiding. Adam is the one in charge, uh, which means Adam is the one responsible for what just took place, and so Adam is quick to jump in a bush. And notice what happens next in verse 9. Verse 9 says, uh, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, it's interesting that God does not call to them. Uh, He he does not say, where are you to? They are are masculine singular pronouns in verse 9. God said to him, where are you, Adam? Why does God call? to the man and not to the two of them and the answer of course as we look at all that scripture says is that adam is the covenant head of humanity he was the head of that first household and of course the the first household encompassed all humankind and this emphasis continues actually to the end of the chapter notice in verses 22 to 24 in everything that god says in verses 22 to 24 he is holding the man adam accountable all of those pronouns, everything that's said is directed toward the man. Eve is not even mentioned in the last three verses. And here's what this means. Uh, Adam was responsible for what happened. You know, sometimes men uh, either jokingly or not want to blame Eve for the fall. That was, at, that was Adam's uh, initial instinct, right? That's what he did after the fall. He said, the woman you put here, she made me do it but God doesn't accept Adam's attempt to pass the buck. Adam was in charge and Adam is held accountable. Now, some again get confused when you come to the New Testament and Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.14 that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was. And some misread this as saying that you know, men are smart and not deceivable, but women are not and are easily uh, deceived or gullible. Uh, but that is Actually, not at all what Paul is saying, uh, because one, Paul talks about sin deceiving him in other places, and he talks about sin deceiving the Corinthians in other places. So Paul recognizes that all people can be deceived by sin. That's not unique to one gender or the other. Others read this uh, in that First Timothy passage as saying that Paul, that that Adam got out unscathed, right? The woman was deceived, but not the man. Uh, But that, again, is not the point at all. In fact, the point is just the opposite. Adam was not deceived, which means if he had done his job and led well, humanity would not have fallen. His lack of being deceived is to his shame. He should have acted better, but he didn't. He failed to lead. Hence, when God calls him out, out in verse 17, God says, because you listened to the voice of your wife. Now, husbands, of course, you should listen to the voice of your wives. Uh, You you should listen to your wives, right? You should listen attentively and regularly and sympathetically. Uh, You should listen to them as people and as friends and as lovers. That's important. Listen to your wives by all means. But what this phrase means in scripture is obey. God is saying, because you obeyed your wife, because you upended the order of creation, Uh, In fact, the whole order of creation is upended in Genesis 3, right? God's word had authority over Adam. Adam had authority over his wife. Uh, We we see that in that he named her even before the fall. Humanity had authority over the beasts. In the fall, what happened? Well, the beast's word, the serpent's, rules Eve. Eve's actions lead Adam, and God is completely ignored. The order of creation is completely upended and turned on its head. And the linchpin, and the one most responsible for that, is Adam. He wasn't deceived, according to Paul, which means he should have known better. And he failed in his role as leader. One writer titled his book on manhood, The Silence of Adam, which is a great title, if also a damning title. Uh, where, Where was Adam when Eve was talking with the serpent? The answer is he was right there the whole time, but he said nothing. He failed to lead. He failed to speak up. He, he was passive rather than actively leading in holiness. And so God takes him to task. He said, you, you have listened to the voice of your wife, meaning you have failed to lead. You have failed to love your wife by protecting her from the evil one. You, you refused to step up when the battle was most fierce. Now, this emphasis on Adam's sin Is extremely important in scripture. This is not the leftover vestige of a bygone era. This is what enables salvation to work. In Adam, Paul says, all die, and in Christ, all will be made alive. You see, God set up headship in this way because only if we are fallen in Adam can we be saved in Christ. No headship, no salvation. If God had made a covenant with each one of us as individuals, then we would each as individuals have to save ourselves. Representative headship is actually written into the fabric of creation so that salvation makes sense. All humanity is under one of two covenant heads, and so we're one of two covenants, and so one of two covenant heads. All humanity is either under the covenant of works, and so fallen in Adam as covenant breakers, or we are under the covenant of grace. And so we are a new creation in Christ, covenant keepers in him, the one who kept the covenant on our behalf. But let's not get too far ahead. Uh, At the moment, we're not looking at the new creation in Christ, but the broken creation in Adam. And so first, accountability. Second, exile. One memory that has forever been stamped on my heart is the day that my mom and brother dropped me off at college. I can remember walking back to my new dorm room from the car, stepping into that room and feeling this intense loneliness. I had never known uh, such loneliness before. Here I was in a new city, in a new place, a new stage of life all by myself. I had no friends, no place to go, nothing to do. I was no longer home. All that, and I still can't imagine what Adam and Eve felt at the end of chapter 3 when God exiled them from Eden. Look again at verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve were created for fellowship with God. Uh, God uh, says that of the tabernacle in Leviticus, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's Leviticus 26. And since the tabernacle is really a picture of the garden, uh, God likely walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. They experienced the fellowship with God that they were made for in the garden until they didn't. Immediately after their sin, Adam and Eve begin to hide from God. They don't want his presence. They are afraid. Blaming one another is just another tactic to hide from God, right? To hide from his justice, to hide from his law, to hide from his wrath. Communion with God has been disrupted. And, and this comes to a climax at the end of the chapter when God sends the man and the woman out of the garden to live in exile from Eden. Now, there are lots of questions as we look at these uh, last couple verses in the chapter that we might ask about this passage. What does it mean that man became like one of us? What would happen if they ate from the tree of life? And yet, whatever the case, God's concern is clear, actually. He he doesn't want Adam and Eve to live forever in their current state. Death is a judgment. They no longer eat from the tree of life. They're going to die. But it is also a mercy in this sense to subject man to physical life, in perpetual spiritual death would be torture. In fact, it will be hell. Man must die if he is to live, which is what we see happen in Jesus. And the shape that that death takes here is exile, exile from Eden, exile from the tree of life, exile from the presence of the Father. God places two cherubim at the entrance together with a flaming sword to guard the gate, the, to guard the gate to paradise. Now, God's plan has always been to bring humanity back. God creates a a tabernacle uh, in Israel to dwell in the midst of his people. But God's message throughout the Old Testament is always come close, but not too close. They could come to Mount Sinai, but only a few people could come halfway up the mountain, and only Moses could come to the top. They could come to the tabernacle, but only the priests could come into the holy place, and only the high priest could come into the most holy place, and he only once a year. Come close, but not too close. The tabernacle, too, has cherubim uh, guarding the way into the holy place, uh, woven into the fabric of the curtains, guarding the way into the most holy place, guarding the gate to paradise. And then comes Jesus, Jesus who is God in the flesh. And so God with us, he interacts with normal people, doing normal people's stuff. But Jesus comes as as a new Adam, as a second Adam, as a last Adam, a new head to execute a new covenant. He comes to taste exile in our place. And that is just what happens on the cross. Jesus is forsaken, abandoned, exiled by the father. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Jesus experiences exile from the Father's love, exile from the Father's presence, which leads to exile from the land of the living. Jesus tastes the bitterness of death and comes under the flaming sword of justice to reopen the way into paradise. And we know that that way was indeed open because Jesus rose from the dead and entered in himself. He entered into the Father's presence, into paradise. In fact, he said to the thief next to him on the cross, this day, you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus is now there. He's now there in the heavenly holy place, seeing the father face to face. And so we can know that though we live outside of Eden, we have a place in paradise. We have been reconciled to our father. We have been raised with Christ. And we will one day physically at the resurrection, enter in into paradise, into the presence of our God. And our hope then is, is that even as we are already, we have already been reconciled to our father through Jesus, even as we already have access to the throne of grace through Jesus, our exile itself will come to an end one day and we will enter in in fullness. And so we've talked a little about accountability and a little about exile. Now let's talk about pain your experience of this world is tainted. You don't experience the world the the way God meant it to be. We were placed in this world as inherently vocational beings to flourish in God's good world, enjoying our work. God gave us a job to do, to fill and form and rule, to work and keep, to serve and protect his world. We were made to find joy in that work, to enjoy the labor of our hands. The writer of Ecclesiastes calls this the gift of God and says that there is nothing better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil. The problem is so much of our callings today bring trouble and difficulty and frustration, not not work, but toil. Work was a good gift from the beginning. It was a good part of creation, but toil, weariness, pain, that is a result of sin. After blame is is dished out by the man and the woman, God begins to hold people responsible. And Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and so God begins with the serpent and and works his way back up to Adam, back to the one who is most responsible. Because we we are working our way backwards, right, to, to the curse on the serpent, we begin with God's address to the man. God is, again, working his way up the the ladder of responsibility, so to speak. And the man gets the, the longest curse in the chapter. The burden of responsibility falls on him. As we have seen, Adam is to blame here. Not Eve, but Adam. The curse itself highlights that responsibility. As we've seen, God is taking Adam to task. But now we want to look at the curse itself, the content of it. Adam will experience death precisely at the point of his calling. Uh, Five times in three verses, verses 17 to 19, five times eating is mentioned. And this is one of the first of many examples of retributive irony in the Bible. Uh, Adam ate what he should not have eaten, and from now on, eating itself will be difficult. The ground, rather than readily giving way to Adam's tending hand, will fight against him, bringing forth thorns and thistles more readily than fruits and vegetables. Weeds have entered the garden. And, and we, we know this, don't we? I mean, that, that our work is hard, that, that getting up every day can feel like a chore, that, that it's often not joyful, uh, that it's often frustrating, that sometimes it feels like rather than subduing the earth, the earth is subduing us. Death has entered into our experience. And the final curse on man is, is physical death, right? From, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. We spend our whole lives fighting with the earth, seeking to make it fruitful, hospitable for human life. And in the end, it wins. We get buried and put in the ground. Sometimes when we talk about death, we say things like, oh, it's, it's a natural part of life. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, death is not a part of life. It is its antithesis. Death enters through Adam. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. I don't enter in here into the uh, speculative questions about other kinds of death before the fall. Paul is speaking about the death of people in Romans 5.12. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Whatever the magnitude of the repercussions of Adam's sin, human death is included. Again, we, we need not speculate on how Adam and Eve would have lived forever. What uh, Was it that the, their regular access to the tree of life, uh, w- or simply that their bodies didn't need anything to continue forever prior to the fall? We don't know. Again, that's speculation. But whatever the case, human death is the result of sin. It is not the natural course of life, but it's decidedly unnatural end the futile end to a sometimes seemingly fruitless existence. Is that an exaggeration? Does that seem kind of pessimistic to you? I, 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 don't, I don't think it is an exaggeration. I think an honest look at, the, at life's futility is what prepares us for an honest look at Jesus. But not yet. Moving back to verse 16, God addresses the woman. Verse 16 says this, To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. God mentions uh, two key areas of Eve's life, her relationship with her children and her relationship with her husband. Why those two? Well, because these are unique to the woman. Uh, The woman has a unique relationship to children, right? The man cannot bear children. Uh, That is a unique role of women. And the woman has a unique relationship in marriage, right? Husband and wife each have different callings, different vocations within the marriage covenant. And the point is that death has broken into every area of human experience. Life outside the garden is a life of pain, bearing and raising children will not be easy. Death has broken in. God did not go back on his threat. He did not change his mind. Uh, Death is now part of everyday human experience. And that's not only true with raising children, but in marriage, the marriage relationship itself, verse 16 says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Human sin means a breakdown of relationships and society, as we saw last week, and that includes the most intimate of relationships, the man and woman's first calling to marriage. Now, this is not saying that that, uh, male headship or male authority in the home is a result of sin. Uh, We saw the man's authority already when he uh, named the woman in paradise pre-fall. Authority structures in and of themselves are a good gift from our good God, though we often misuse them. No, what's going on here is the struggle for control. The woman's desire would be for her husband, but he would rule over her. Now, we see the same language and the same struggle, actually, in chapter 4. Uh, there, God says to Cain, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And there would be a struggle for control, right? Sin would try to rule Cain, but Cain must rule over sin. But here, those same words describe the breakdown of marriage. Uh, From now on, as sin desired to control Cain, that the woman would desire to take control in marriage. And this is sometimes true, isn't it? Uh, How often do we hear that that a wife does not want to submit to her husband or does not want to obey her husband, does not want to follow her husband's lead? And, and there are lots of reasons for that, right? Uh, probably one of the biggest is oftentimes we misunderstand authority and submission altogether. But authority and submission are both beautiful when done in submission to God. And of course, both are ugly when distorted to our own purposes. But you know, if authority and submission are exercised the way Jesus exercised them, because he exercised both authority in the world and submission to his father, and when authority and submission are exercised as Jesus did, we actually see that they are beautiful things. And we could all submit willingly and cheerfully, which is what we will, are all called to do every day in any number of ways, right? Children to parents, wives to husbands, citizens to governors, church members to elders, employees to employers, students to teachers, and so on. In a hundred given spheres, in a hundred different ways, we are called to submit to authorities that God has placed over us. Now, what is said next is a little less clear to me. When God says, he shall rule over you, what does that mean? It could mean one of two things, actually. Uh, It could mean that man in his sin, in turn, will rule harshly over the woman. Uh, The word there could mean that. It could mean harsh rule, but it doesn't have to. Uh, So it could also mean that while the woman would want to fight for control, the man must maintain the created order and continue to lead in the home. Uh, that makes a little more sense because of the, the, the parallel with Cain. Uh, Sin wanted to rule over him. Sin wanted to have him. Sin's desire was contrary to him, but he must, he must maintain control. Uh, either way, though, uh, the husband's servant leadership is the norm. Uh, domineering over others, is a perversion of that created norm. And whether God is saying, just looking at the human struggle in marriage from now on and saying, this is going to be a struggle. Uh, The the woman is going to want to upend her husband's rule. The husband is going to rule harshly. That could be what it's saying. Uh, Either way, the norm is servant leadership of the husband and, and the beauty of submission of the wife. Death, though, has entered into our callings. As parents, death has entered into our callings as husbands and wives, and life at times feels painful and futile. Jesus came to taste that pain and futility for us. From an earthly perspective, his life was futile. Uh, He was a religious teacher rejected by the religious establishment, His own family questioned his sanity at times. He had a small following, many of whom deserted him even before his final week. He was betrayed by one of his closest uh, in his final week. Then his core group, his closest friends, all abandoned him at the very moment that he needed them most. He was cut off at a young age, his early thirties. And what did he leave to show for it? A handful of disillusioned disciples. If your work ever feels futile, whether in the home or outside of it, look here. That is not the end, of course. Uh, When Jesus was crucified, he wore a crown of thorns, symbolizing the futility of life, the reality of the curse, his bearing what Adam brought. Jesus took that curse into the grave, he was buried, but he did not turn to dust. God raised him from the dead. If it were not for the resurrection, of course, Jesus' work would have been in vain. But in the resurrection, Jesus triumphs as Lord of creation and his completed work begins to bear fruit. Paul says of us that our work too might be in vain if it were not for the resurrection. In light of the longest discussion uh, on, on the resurrection in scripture, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:58, therefore, my beloved brothers, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in in vain in the Lord. Our labor is not in vain because God can bring life out of death. Our labor is not in vain because our reward comes from the Lord who will reward us on the last day. Our labor is not in vain because Christ drank down the futility of this life that we might know fruitfulness. does your work feel empty, futile, or frustrating. If you are serving Jesus in your work, it is not in vain. Continue to serve him, knowing that from the Lord comes your reward, and he will bring life out of death as we give ourselves to serving him. Okay, so that's accountability, exile, and pain. Finally, let's turn to hope. We come back, backwards, to verses 14 and 15, and the curse on the serpent life outside of eden is hard it means being held accountable for sin exile from the father's presence and pain in our work that ends in death we are not in paradise anymore but this is not the end of the story right we we have hints throughout this chapter but the high point of that is in verses 14 and 15 verses 14 and 15 say this uh, then the lord god said to the serpent Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's easy to puzzle here as we look at this curse on the serpent over exactly uh, who is being cursed. Is God cursing snakes or snake kind, or is there some deeper, some more profound thing going on? What clues us in that this is not just about snakes uh, is actually verse 15. uh, When verse 15 talks about the offspring of the woman fighting with the serpent himself. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? Unless this particular serpent is going to live a long time until the offspring comes, God must not be talking to a snake. And he's not. He's talking to the devil who used this serpent, this beast of the field for his nefarious purposes. And so what, what then is the curse in verse 15 or verse 14, rather? Uh, is, isn't it explaining why snakes crawl on their bellies? Well, probably not. Uh, rather, it seems that God is saying something like this to Satan, uh, because you used a serpent, uh, you too will eat dust all the days of your life, right? Because you use this animal that crawls upon the ground, from now on, that is going to be a symbol of your subjection, of your over, uh, of, of your being subdued, Satan. You eat the dust in scripture has become, or is a metaphor, just as it is today, for utter defeat. God is promising the serpent, or that is the devil, that he will be utterly defeated. That just as the serpent crawls on the ground in each dust, that Satan himself would be overthrown and cast to the ground. Now, this defeat has two aspects to it. You you see them in verse 15. There's an ongoing aspect and an ultimate aspect. Uh, First, uh, there is the ongoing war between the serpent's offspring and the woman's. Now, uh, what this is saying is that there's going to be this very real ongoing tension between those who reject God and his ways and those who want to follow Jesus. So uh, John tells us who these people are. Uh, John tells us the offspring of Satan are those who make a practice of sinning, 1 John 3, 8, and he counts Cain among them, as we'll see when we get to the next chapter. The offspring of the woman, uh, according to John in Revelation, are uh, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, Revelation 12, 17. And so there's this tension here, right, between those who who follow the serpent's ways and reject God and those who want to follow God and listen to his word. And there's a tension between those two groups because the ultimate commitment of each is different. If my ultimate commitment is to God and his word, And someone else's ultimate commitment is that anything in this age, even an abstract value, however good it might be, those commitments will ultimately conflict. That tension cannot ultimately be relieved, right? We can learn to to live together and that's important in the world, uh, but there will always be this underlying tension. But there is not just an ongoing, uh, but there is also an ultimate conflict described here the text describes the offspring of the woman as a singular he. This singular offspring will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. This ongoing conflict between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman will come to a head when the serpent himself faces off with one particular offspring of the woman, which is where Jesus comes in. He comes born of a woman, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman to fight on our behalf, as our champion, to crush the head of the serpent. He was exiled in death, but he was raised and ascended into the heavenly holy place. He was forsaken by the Father, but he was restored in his resurrection. He was crowned with thorns, the symbol of futility, but he was raised as Lord of creation. He was born of a woman to conquer the serpent through death, so that through death he might destroy the power of the devil, and he was raised victorious. Jesus is the seed of the woman come to crush the head of the serpent. Adam believes this promise. And so in verse 20, he names his wife Eve, which sounds like a Hebrew word for life, because she would be the mother of all living. See, God would fulfill his promise through her, raising up offspring through her, despite sin, despite the curse, and ultimately to overthrow the evil one. God would fulfill his promise through the woman to bring about a savior who would crush the head of the serpent. Adam had hope, though really he he knew very little. But we now know that the seed of the woman has come. He has conquered in the resurrection, which should give us hope. Whatever is going on, Jesus has risen. His resurrection power is at work even now through his spirit. And that same spirit will make all things new on the last day. And so we hope in him. We hope in him for today. We hope in him for tomorrow. And we hope in him until the resurrection. Let's pray. Oh, our father, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that Jesus has uh, risen from the dead, uh, that he has ascended to your right hand, that he even now intercedes for us and pleads on our behalf based on the merits of his blood. Father, we pray that you would help us to hope in him, even in the midst of the struggle, help us to face life, face the struggles, enter in, and yet help us to hope in the resurrection and the last day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.